Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for December 2017. I am writer hyphen subsidiary of the Walt Disney Corporation, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hello, I'm writer hyphen film critic hyphen call me by my name, even if you mispronounce it, Rochelle Zemenovich. And we are going to be joined by our guest a little later in the show, but I'm glad to say that we are still here uh, despite the tightrope of last month where we attempted to navigate the tricky moral conundrum of problematic artists and whether we can still engage with their work. And I'm so glad that uh, controversy is well and truly behind us. So to this month's films and Woody Allen's Wonder Wheel, set in 1950s Coney Island, Kate Winslet plays Ginny, a woman who welcomes her husband's daughter into their home only to find them both in competition for a handsome lifeguard. It sounds like a comedy and there are some funny moments, but this is a drama that feels as much inspired by Tennessee Williams as Blue Jasmine did. So it's a, a complex dive into the darker aspects of human nature. Rochelle, did you enjoy this film or did you see this film? I think you may know the answer to this, Lee. I did not see this film. But did you um, enjoy it? <laughs> I loved it. Oh, great. No, I, I suspect this probably isn't one of Woody Allen's must-see films. Thus, I left it to the last minute and didn't actually get there. When it started, when the film started, I wouldn't have thought it was a must-see. Mm. The first few scenes are long, meandering, dialogue-heavy sequences with no real propulsion to them. And it starts to feel like just an exercise in nostalgia. But the film does click into place, and once it really gets going, I think it might be, certainly of his films of the last five years, I would, I would rate this quite highly. I don't know. I, I do have a, a conflict here because like, I really enjoyed the film as it got going. I thought the conundrum was really well drawn. Uh, and I, I think that even his worst films have an idea at their heart. Like They always pose a dramatic question and explore it in great detail, even if they don't work. My initial reaction was that I was very impressed with it. And I think that reaction comes from watching it in an artificial vacuum where you sort of deliberately shut out all the external influences. The more I thought about it afterwards, and I started to see it through the filter of Alan's own biography, it is pretty manipulative. It really sort of hinges on how jealous and vicious women can be. Mm. Uh, And I'm not sure if that's the correct reading because I don't... I find it interesting to augment my reactions to films with the biographies of the people, of the filmmakers, of the auteurs. But I don't think that is the exclusive filter you should watch these films through. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to watch any of his films. Mm. Um, I wouldn't have been able to watch a single Polanski film last month. You know, so up until that point, I think it's it's really quite interesting. Mm. Is it funny? Because I always get a laugh out of a Woody mm. Allen film, even when they're bad. I I do enjoy his sensibility um, at times. And, yeah, was it fun? was it a comedy? It's it's not a comedy, but it is. it has some funny moments. Mm. There's comedy in the tragedy, and he, he understands that quite well. Mm. So, But, no, I would recommend it. I think, I think you might enjoy it. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll look out for it. It doesn't seem to be at many cinemas um, at the moment, mm. so maybe on DVD. Yeah. Our next film is Downsizing. It's the latest film from Alexander Payne, the director of Election, Sideways, Nebraska and The Descendants. Co-written with Payne's regular collaborator, Jim Taylor, the story takes place sometime in the near future where technology exists for people to become tiny about the size of an iPhone and thereby reduce the resources that they consume. An average guy like the middle-aged and financially struggling Paul Safranak, Matt Damon, can live like a king and also contribute to saving the planet. 
So he decides, along with his wife Audrey, Kristen Wiig, to undergo the miniaturising procedure. But when he awakens, she's changed her mind and stayed big, and after the divorce, he quickly finds himself living a life just as drab as before, until he meets his hedonistic neighbour Duzanne, played by Christoph Waltz, and leading lady, cleaning lady, I should say, Hong Chow, a Vietnamese dissident who was miniaturised as political punishment. She arrived in the States as the surviving refugee in a television box, and through her, Paul discovers a shanty town just outside his beige-gated community. This is a strange film filled with interesting ideas and odd shifts in tone. What did you make of Downsizing, Lee? Well, it took me a few weeks to figure that out. I, uh, I tend to have this reaction to Alexander Payne's films where I come out going, what was that? Mm. And then it takes me a while to figure Like, I hated... The Descendants when I saw it, and now I love it. Like, really? I really love it, yeah. And I couldn't stand it when I first watched it. And I'm having that reaction with this. Like, I'm not trying to be a contrarian about it, but I actually think there's a, it's a far more interesting film than it's getting credit for. Because it's being sold as a certain type of film, and that's the first half of the film. And then it's like they got bored halfway through and went... You know, the Coen brothers do that. They'll If they get halfway through a script and then think, oh, let's write a new film, they will write a different film. But they'll call it something else and they'll make it separate to the first. These guys just wrote a new film and kept calling it downsizing. So it's like, mm. it's, it's such a bizarre pivot. And, um, and that's what makes it interesting to me. I don't know, mm. did, you, did you find that or did you not go along with it? Oh, look, I'm the same as you. I've got so many conflicting feelings about this film. It wasn't what I expected. It wasn't what I thought I wanted. It wasn't what the trailer promised. Mm. It doesn't totally work at times, but it, it's really interesting. And he, he goes places that you wouldn't expect. And I think, I mean, I think part of the problem with it is that you're not quite sure whether it's a comedy, a satire, mm. a drama... What is it? But that's also what makes it interesting. Yeah. I love that you accidentally called Hong Chow a leading lady instead of a cleaning lady. She is the leading because lady. <laughs> she steals the film completely. Yeah. And I feel like they must have known that when they were writing it because she just becomes the main character basically in the second half. She is amazing. The actress is incredible and, and just really injects life into the film just as it's starting to lag. I mean, as much as I enjoy, like, you know, Damon's good in it and Udo Kier and Christoph Waltz as a sleazy double act is just a gift one thing that's interesting about it is the second half of the film you don't need the shrinking aspect mm. the fact that they're being shrunk down actually is not important to the film once you get halfway through mm. although i think that's possibly what some people are disappointed mm. by because these kinds of films you know the pleasure is often in seeing you know a human reduced to the size of you know a, a little iPhone standing under a giant butterfly or being chased by a cat or, yeah, yeah. you know, like in Land of the Giants, which I used to watch when I was a kid on TV. And th this film kind of doesn't really play with that aspect too much. I mean, yes, you've got, you've got some interesting um, scenes with the little people travelling alongside the big people inside a plane and carried along in a cat carrier, basically. Yeah. But it's not about those visual jokes, really. It's yeah. about something deeper. It's a man coming to terms with his life's purpose. And also I think, you know, it's really interesting to see the way that the social structures of the world at large are reproduced in the smaller world. Mm. I think the first half does explore what would happen if we, if we shrunk people down and what are all the implications of that. And the second half is almost about one other idea, which is that, oh, if we get shrunk down, then we can all live in paradise, right? 
But no, we still find a way to have that social strata and to push people off to the fringes of society. And, and I think that's a very important direction for it to go. Otherwise, it's, you know, what will this poor middle class white guy with all this money do? You know, which, mm. was, which you know, still would have been interesting given the high concept premise of the film. But I think this is more interesting. So I don't know. I didn't, I'm actually sounding a lot more positive than I think I was before I started talking about this. Yeah, I'm starting to talk myself into enjoying it more. So maybe I like it more than I think. Yeah, I think it's a film to see with an open mind mm. and probably keep your expectations quite modest and then you, you might get something out of it. Yeah. Well, our next film is Call Me By Your Name. It's the latest film from Luca Guadagnino. Where have I heard that name before? <laughs> uh, set in 1983 Italy, it's written by James Ivory, uh, based on the novel by Andre Ackerman, and chronicles the relationship between 17-year-old Elio and his father's American assistant, Oliver, over the course of a summer. Now, I saw this film back in August at the Melbourne Film Festival, and since then it's been praised by nearly everyone who's seen it as a dyed-in-the-wool masterpiece. But, Rochelle, you saw it res- relatively recently. Did that praise affect your viewing at all? It did, and I'm finding that so many films are getting overhyped, and this affects my expectations of them. And then when I see them, I see them in that light, and I kind of wish I could avoid all the hype before I saw this film because I loved it but it didn't transport me mm. in quite the, the way that I'd been led to believe by the um, the swooning and tearful responses among some film lovers in the Melbourne community. It's a beautiful film, it's amazing, it's lovely but it's, it's also a quiet, languid film. So I think it's one to see, another one to see with modest expectations, although it's a much, it's a much more successful film than Downsizing. <laughs> mm. What about you? Well, I saw it pretty hype, and I mean, I was hyped in my own head because I've loved his films since I Am Love mm. in, I think, 09, which just blew me mm. away. I adore that film I so much. I adore it too. Yeah? Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I, I, that was sort of, you never know if you're going to love filmmaker's other works as much as that one so it was sort of it could could have gone either way but uh, yeah it is a languid film there's no artifice to it no desire to manufacture conflict for the sake of drama which I really like the drama comes from the wants and desires and the uncertainty in every moment about what's to come next you know there's a real tension about if I kiss this guy will he kiss me back if I do this will someone walk in Mm, if that mm. you know and there's an inherent eroticism to every object in a Guadagnino film, mm. from peaches to items of clothing to, like, the long grass. And what really won me over with all of his films, but this film in particular, was that he's more engaged in the aesthetics of cinema than many of even the most lauded modern-day filmmakers. And I'm just I'm so seduced by every frame of his film. And it just... Mm. I am one of those people who, who went on and on about it. But I, I, I had no way of anticipating the the tsunami of of praise that this film would get because you never know if the thing that you love will be loved by everyone Mm. else so yeah it's been did it move you well very much so Mm. yeah yeah Yeah. i mean it did take me back to i think you know that sort of awakening that you have as a teenager when you're exploring your first love and your first lust and there's that beautiful mixture of irritation and hypersensitivity you know Mm. these two men sort of circle each other and they they don't like each other at first sight at all although they're attracted to each other and just the way every move every gesture every look has so many multiple interpretations 
And then when they finally get together, I love that scene where they uh, start talking about, well, I was thinking this and then you did that. Oh, no, but I was thinking this and you did that. And, you know, they have that pleasure of sort of going through their, their various interpretations of each other's behaviour and, and enjoying the fact that they got to this point where they are together. Mm. It definitely captures that moment of, of first love and first lust. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just gorgeous to spend time with this family who are living in this beautiful, I don't know, 18th century villa in the north of Italy and, you know, they speak four languages mm. and, you know, the 17-year-old boy composes music and plays Bach on various instruments and, you know, it's just so civilised and it's a very civilised film. I mean, that's yeah. Guadagnino for you. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I really enjoyed this film but I'd say it's... It's my least favourite of uh, the three Guadagnino films that I've seen. Okay. Still, very much a film to see for summer break. Yeah. So for something the exact opposite of a languid summer film, let's move to our next film, Star Wars The Last Jedi. In this latest instalment of the never-ending Star Wars story, Rey, Daisy Ridley, develops her newly discovered abilities with the guidance of the reluctant old Jedi Knight, Luke Skywalker, played by Mark Hamill. Meanwhile, the Resistance, led by Carrie Fisher's Leia, prepares to do battle with the First Order, where her son, Darth Vader wannabe Kylo Ren, played by Adam Driver, is growing in power, but still seemingly deeply conflicted. Will he come over to the light side or will he draw Ray into the dark because they have some kind of magical chemistry? Meanwhile, there are lots of cul-de-sacs and side battles in space and on other planets involving hothead pilot Poe Dameron, Oscar Isaac, the brave ex-stormtrooper Finn, John Boyega, and his new sidekick Rose, Kelly Marie Tran. This instalment is directed by the relatively inexperienced but very talented Ryan Johnson. His previous films include Brick, Looper and The Brothers Bloom. Lee, do you think this is a worthy addition to the franchise and does Johnson bring anything fresh to it? Uh, yes and yes, but also no. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it, the, a lot of the debate raging around this film comes from whether it's taken too many liberties. I feel the opposite. I'm going to start with, with the criticism because I want to know what is a Star Wars film? Is it, is it one that features like rebel underdogs fighting against a better resourced empire, a certain type of star base, a certain type of iron door planet hideout, a remote training ground on an island or a swamp, TIE fighters and X-wings battling it out in trenches, a lightsaber battle, a wild escape. The beats are so familiar and yet it's been criticised for taking too many liberties. And I worry that Star Wars is now locked into a format almost as rigid as James Bond. Uh, but that's another discussion for another time. The sequence that seems to have bothered most people is the one that takes place on the casino planet. Mm. And that was my favourite, because that was new. I had not seen that before. I had not seen a discussion about warmongers and profiteers playing both sides in a casino setting. And just for that alone made me feel like there is life to be breathed in, mm. into it. Now, before I, like, I, and I have to say, I love this film, and I think it's one of the best Star Wars films, but I had to say that up front because I, I think that Star Wars is in danger of becoming too rigid unless they shake up the format a bit, unless they change the universe, because the characters are going in interesting places, but the world is not, which is the opposite of what franchises usually do. Mm. How do you feel about the film? Look, I really had a good time with this film. Um, I'm not a super 
nostalgic Star Wars fan from way back. I kind of can dip in and out, even though I think I've seen most of them. It felt like a fun reunion with old friends. It felt like this was this was a lot more fun to me than the one uh, last year, which was just full of battle scenes and not much in between, I felt. I enjoyed all the callbacks to the early films, the elderly mentor, the giant robots, the Millennium Falcon sweeping in to save the day, um, all that stuff. I like the fact that Star Wars is prepared to kill off major characters and even heaps of major characters. And, he, you know, there's... It's very serious in many ways. It's not one of those films that's going to just, you know, let mm. you off lightly. But I've got to stop saying this, but it was just too long. It felt like this is a war that is never going to end. Mm. I think in the earlier films you have that feeling that the battle between good and evil has some eventual conclusion. Yeah. This just feels like, nah, it's going to be like a real war that just goes on and it's on. It's wheel spinning. Yeah. Yeah, you do feel that because, like, I mean, we've had we've seen the Empire defeated. It happened in the eighties. Like, I saw, I've seen that film on VHS. Like, the Empire got defeated, and but we're still in that same battle. And like, there are ways to tell to tell that story of like good and evil, and the battle continues without adhering to that strict. I know I've got to stop talking about it because I love this film. Why am mm-hmm. I being so negative about it? Because two years ago on this show, I talked about coming out of Force Awakens, and like nearly every Star Wars film that I've seen in the cinema. Uh, like from Phantom Menace onwards, it thrilled me as I was watching it. And the moment I stepped outside, I either forgot what happened or I was like, no, that was awful. Why did I enjoy that? This is the first film that has improved upon reflection. Mm. It's the first Star Wars film where the more I think about it, the better it gets, which is, I think, remarkable in and of itself. I, despite my issues, like I'm making peace with these issues uh, that I have with it because literally every other thing for me anyway is is so damn good it's so funny it's the funniest it Star Wars funny. film it's since the originals funny. yeah and I mean even that opening scene that standoff between um, oh yes I can never remember any of the character names o- o- Oscar Isaac and uh, and his buddy from Ex Machina uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Domhnall Gleeson that's, that's just that is so funny and it's in character and it works and it's the best-looking Star Wars film. It mm. looks incredible. But here is the interesting thing. I was so tense throughout because I didn't know what was going to happen. For a film that's about good and evil and you know who everyone is, I didn't know who was going to be redeemed, who was going to turn to the dark side, who was going to die, who was going to live. And I had a few predictions, and I was wrong about more than half of them. Mm. And as a result, I was incredibly engaged, and there was a fair amount of tension throughout which I enjoyed, and I liked the fact that these characters could have gone in any direction. And I know that is at odds with my complaint about the format being rigid, but, you know, I'm an enigma. so Yeah, I had a lot of fun with this film, don't get me wrong. I especially mm. loved the, the chemistry between Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley's yeah. characters. I, I like the cute critters. I know a lot of people have criticised these porgs that uh, exist. Criticised. Sorry. <laughs> <Lady>. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I I like them. Yeah. I think um, Chewie gets not much to do here, but just, you know, kind of have a little bit of interaction with the critters. It's a fun film. It's a film for the whole family. And mm. how many films are actually that these days? So you've got to, you've got to love it for that. And now for the part of the show you've all been waiting for, I'm sure, our best of lists for 2017. Anybody who knows me knows I hate lists. I hate ranking. I really find it stressful. I don't like doing it, but 
But I'm... how do you know whether you enjoy art unless you've ranked it against other art in a rigid <laughs> number format? That's... Well, every year I have to do it, so here I am. But let's go with you firstly, um, your top five films in, uh, in whatever order you'd like to mention. Them. I'll start from the middle and work outwards. No, uh, in ascending order. Okay, my top five of the year. So number five is Blade Runner 2049. I think as a film, it is beautiful and fascinating science fiction. As a sequel to a canonized classic, it is perfection. I'm still in awe that not only that they didn't screw it up, but they got it so right. There is not a bad decision in that film, I think. And it looks just insanely good too. Uh, Number four, Manchester by the Sea. Uh, Ken Lonergan's Margaret Remains, one of my favourite films of all time. I think it's an absolute masterwork. And Manchester is right up there with it. And it's hard to talk about why without spending a good hour or two on it. So I'll just blow right on past that. To number three, which is Get Out. Uh, Jordan Peele's debut is, I think, a masterpiece. It's a horror film that manages to play with familiar horror tropes, but still reinvent them in a way that feels more relevant to 21st century American than almost every other horror film I can think of. Uh, Number two is The Square. Uh, Swedish filmmaker Ruben Ostlund has made a film that I think is every bit as good as his phenomenal force majeure. Uh, It's all about the spaces we construct to feel safe, the artificial barriers we carry around with us, and I think it's one of the funniest films of the year, too. He is... I always forget how funny his films are, and this killed me. Which brings us to number one... I'm a bit self-conscious about this being my number one for obvious reasons, but it's Call Me By Your Name. Mm-hmm. Not just because everyone else has it on their list, but because the director is about to join us on the show. Uh, this leapt to the top of my list back in August, and it has remained there ever since, uh, basically for the reasons I said in the review. It's, it's easily my favourite film of the year. So that's my top five. Wow, great list. Thanks. Um, I haven't seen The Square. I must see that. You must. And... Um, yeah, Call Me By Your Name is is a great film. It's in my top 11. <laughs> <laughs> Links to in the end of your blog yeah. on the website. Go and check it out. But what is what would you say your five? Of, do you have a top five of the year? Okay, top five in no particular order. Number one, Faces, Places, um, Agnes Varda and JR. This is just such a playful, wise and life-affirming documentary Um, It's so egalitarian. It's a celebration of ordinary people's lives in rural France, and I I just loved it. Uh, Number two, Raw, Julia Ducourneau, which was um, just a really surprising and visceral female horror film about cannibalistic urges. Number three, The Party, Sally Potter. I saw this at MIFF, and it was just the most entertaining film I saw this year. It's a sort of metronome-timed black-and-white chamber comedy. The performances were universally delicious, but have to mention Patricia Clarkson, Bruno Ganz and Kristen Scott Thomas. Hasn't had a general release here yet, but when it does, you must see it. What number are we up to? Four. Blade Runner, agree with everything you said, Lee. I'm really relieved that you're one of the lovers and not the haters. A lot of people have been so hard on this film, and I just... I just felt transported by it, um, which is a word I've used a lot this episode, transported. It's the ultimate accolade for a film. The, you know, it was flawed. It kind of lost me in the last little bit, but I didn't care because the rest of it was just so magical and amazing. And I, I thought it was a 
almost perfect sequel as well. And number five, Certain Women, Kelly Reichardt. Um, this was a sort of a, a quiet film, a portrait of three women, um, a triptych sort of film. And I just thought it was so sensitive and beautiful to those sort of quiet moments of drama between people. And, um, yeah, I love her work. Yeah, I uh, due to the confused nature of film festival releases versus general releases, Certain Women was in my top list last year. Uh-huh. Uh, I love that film. I, um, I also love Faces Places. If we'd done the top ten, I would mention that. Uh, yeah, Raw was fantastic as well, and I'm kicking myself for not seeing The Party. I, I'm annoyed that I missed that, so hopefully I'll get to catch it next year. But, uh, yeah, there we go. The definitive list of the top <laughs> films of the year. <laughs> Okay, so back in August, it was about two days after you and I had lunch and you agreed, perhaps foolishly, to be the new co-host of Hellos for Hyphenates. Uh, I had an interview lined up with Luca Guadagnino, director of I Am Love, A Bigger Splash and Call Me By Your Name. Now, it was fantastic and my mind was blown that this filmmaker I loved was going to be on the show. Problem was that we didn't know who he was going to pick. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the publicist was uh, understood the format of the show and she was fantastic, but... Uh, he hadn't replied to her email saying, by the way, which filmmaker would you like to, to pick? The night before the interview, I'm freaking out because I don't know what to do. And I go to a session at the Melbourne Film Festival to see the film Final Portrait. And the seat I'm heading towards, I, I like sitting in the front row at this particular theatre. And Luca is sitting two seats behind me. Mm. And so I sit there and I'm debating, should I go up and say hello? And I do. And I go up and I introduce myself. I say, I'm going to be talking to you tomorrow. And he, he was so lovely. And I explained the format of the show. And he went, oh, oh that's interesting. My favorite filmmaker. And he goes, hang on, give, give, give me a second. Where are you sitting? And I pointed to my seat and he said, I'll, I'll come find you in a bit. And then he turned to his friend and they started talking about, like, who's my favorite filmmaker? Mm. Who wanna... And I sit down and it's before the film has started. And so I pull out my phone just to start browsing. And a second later, he's standing in front of me. <laughs> he says, okay. Maurice Piela. And I went, so who, who, who say that again? And he goes, Maurice Piela. I'm like, I don't know who that is. And he spills out the surname and I type it in. I go, okay, it's a real person. And in that moment, I was like, do I pretend to this, this mm. director that I worship, should I pretend to have heard of mm. who is clearly his favorite filmmaker or one of them anyway? So I look him up and I go, okay, great. I'll, I'll see you tomorrow morning. And we watch the film. And I go home and I stay up all night reading everything I can about PLR. I obviously don't have time to watch any of his films, but I have enough to ask questions and I go in the next morning to the hotel where he's staying and speak to Luca and here is how the interview went. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for hosting me. Oh, it's, it's completely our pleasure. I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of your work. And uh, I have to confess, I have to make a confession. As you probably realised last night when you said uh, uh, the name of, of the filmmaker you're going to talk about, uh, it, it's, it's very difficult for someone like me who, who prides themselves on watching a lot of films and knowing a lot of filmmakers to admit when I have not heard of someone. Uh, I briefly considered lying and then thought... No, I'll come clean. Honesty, good. Yeah, honesty, always the way. Uh, it's much easier to remember. So, how old are you? I'm 36. And how, how, when do you track down the moment in which you became a cinephile? Uh, when I was three years old, my parents took me to see the original King Kong, 1933, on a big screen. Siodzak. Sorry? The director of the 1933 yep. version. Yep. Uh, okay, that's a good start. 
and so yet uh, you didn't got to the point of uh, the great uh, French cinema Fourth Nouvelle Vague. Well, no, I, I I did, but it was it was a lot of obvious choices like the the Truffauts and the Godards and Vader and and Schroeder. names like that. Sorry, the Schroeders. Yeah, exactly. And and for some reason, uh, Maurice Pilat passed me by. Uh, I don't know how. I'm, as I read about him last night, I was amazed that. That somehow I had this blind spot. Did you try to see some of his uh, films or sequences, pieces uh, of movies? I didn't anything? last night, but I, I'm going to try. It's to a good thing, but like when you when you find out something that you don't know, which is always a great discovery thing, then you have the pleasure of uh, immersing yourself mm. into the world of that director or that artist. It's great. It's going to be great. I'm you very excited. It. Yeah. So, how would you describe him to to someone like me who? Who is not familiar with him? Well, Piala uh, has always been the odd man out, in a way, sort of maverick of French cinema. He never really fit any kind of boxes, uh, whether it was uh, being uh, pure art cinema or more borderline commercial. Every directors, even the ones in the Nouvelle Vague, they had their own world in which you could put them into. Uh, within the boundaries of the industry in, in France, I would say, and also uh, uh, from the perspective of what kind of stories and films they were keen in, in telling. Uh, Piala was a kind of a really rare, rare beast. Uh, he was really a free player, and um, sometimes he was also perceived as a sort of contrarian to a degree of uh, almost dislike disliking from the from from the consensus uh, the first time i got to know him i got to be aware of him was when i was 16 when i was watching as always uh, the closing ceremony the award ceremony of Cannes. that year was i think it was 1987 i may be wrong or maybe 88 but anyway that was the year in which he won the golden palm with the movie under satan sun so oh Sous le Soleil de Satan, uh, a movie that uh, because I remember, I, I, it since I'm 10 years old that I read newspapers and everything. Now that we have the internet, it's even easier. I see, I read all the chronicles from the festivals, and I remembered already that when the movie came out during the festival was really bashed, like it was really not welcomed. And then he got the Palme d'Or, and everybody started to boo in a way that was so harsh. And he said something wonderful. He said something that I made also um, as a sort of motto for myself. He said something like, if you don't love me, then I don't love you anymore. Mm-hmm. To the audience getting his palm door. It was really like very confrontational. And um, yeah, so he never really fit uh, now that uh, almost 20 years passed by his death, his position in the, in the canon of, of cine- French cinema. It's such an important one and so prominent. So did, was that, that was the first film of his you saw? Under no, no, that was the first time I was aware of him. Right, so what was the first film? Police. Let's see, that was the uh, 1985? Yeah, I saw it later when he got out in, in VHS. My upbringing as a cineast, uh, cinephile, was uh, Ala Fassbinder. Uh, a lot of books of cinema and at least two movies on VHS every day with my VHS. And did you see all of his films? Did you? Well, I, I remember I saw Police, then I, re- I, 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 I catched up with uh, 
one of the movies that are really pivotal for my uh, perspective on cinema and life, which is uh, To Our Loved Ones, Anna Moore, which is also a, a very important pillar in, of inspiration to call me by your name. And then I saw, I started to, so, to see all the rest. Yeah. And, and so I, I've read, you know, uh, critics describing him as uh, steeped in realism and his films are very unsentimental. Is that something that appealed to you? What was what was in his style? Well, I'm more and more uh, becoming conscious. Even though before being conscious, I was un- I was uh, definitely uh, how can I say aware in- unconsciously of the traps trappings of the conventions of cinema. Like yesterday, I was uh, walking into the street to back from dinner, and I bumped into a bunch of kids who were all dressed in... Um, they seemed to be in drag, but they weren't. They were just dressed in their attire that was a sort of dark, post-punk, goth mm. attire, a mix, a, a mesh-up. And there was a sort of canon of the people that were in the group. It was basically all women and a boy. All girls and a boy. But the way they were came together these kids they seems to be almost coming off of the cliche of a, of a teen comedy from Fox Searchlight <laughs> um, and uh, which is an elevated teen comedy they would say I thought oh then, then I thought of myself then the, these teen comedies that I kind of uh, can't stand, cannot stand they are truthful because in reality kids are liking these teen comedies and then I made a double jump and I thought, no, it's those kids who are acted out by decades of imagery that molds their identities. Mm. And, and that's sentimentalism in my, in my opinion. You know, like the idea that you have to succeed, the idea that you have to, uh, that there is an arc, even in life, mm. the idea that... Uh, a behavior can be this can be described and can be seen from the perspective of a meaning that has to conclude itself. Um, all these is sentimentalism and a sort of unflinching realism and unsentimentalism. To me, it's a sort of antidote to the idea of a sort of uh, constructed uh, uh, narrative that comes off of. Uh, a sort of artificial uh, perspective on life, and and what what I, I absolutely am stunned by Piala, among other stuff, is that his cinema, it's absolutely uh, uh, disconnected by the idea of an artificial, uh, fabricated idea of reality, but it's actually soaked into reality, and unfortunately, um, even French cinema in the past 25 years has more and more and more and more became polluted by this uh, very Hollywood idea that uh, a narrative uh, comes from the perspective of a cliché that can be used to get to the point of the three art, three acts. Uh, that's something that completely alien to the Piala, and I would say to all the greatest, you know, in my opinion. But Piala, definitely... So he, he resists that? The, the I, don't think, I, I don't think that Piala resists that. Yeah. I think Piala has never been affected by that kind of virus. You know, you have to think that 
Piala, I think, would be nine, like 85 now, 88. So he comes from a generation... I think that, that generation was probably almost the last not to be intellectually bargaining its perspective from this kind of globalized idea of a cultural background, a sort of cultural baggage. If you think about it, like it's very rare nowadays to find, and I include myself, unfortunately, to find an intellectual uh, uh, architecture that is built without the uh, self or non-self-imposition of a narrative that comes off of a sort of corporate, a globalized identity. And, uh, and Piala comes from that generation. And so for him, it wasn't a question of resisting. He just didn't care. It wasn't part of his own It wasn't him. Of course, you can also see... Uh, and by the way, he uses pop music. He, he, he mixes a lot of elements that comes from the 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 mass the massification. But yet he does it in a perspective that is absolutely alien of of prefabricated identity. So, on on that point, last night you and I saw um, the premiere of Final Portrait, yeah. filmed by Stanley Tucci. Uh, Jeffrey Rush introduced the film and did a, a Q and A and. He said something very interesting because it's a, it's a you know a film about about a painter and he said that Tucci uh, specifically wanted to avoid uh, the sentimentality of Lust for Life, uh, the Vincent Minnelli film about Vincent Van Gogh. Uh, there is another film playing at this festival, uh, Loving Vincent, about Van Gogh. I noticed that this is the fourth time on on my show where we've talked about a filmmaker who has made a film about Van Gogh because we've talked about uh, Minnelli, Robert Altman, uh, Kurosawa. And he keeps Van Gogh keeps appearing uh, in the works of these very different filmmakers who all seem very attracted to a storyline that, that, that I, I would almost suggest they impose upon him. Minnelli sees him as this great figure and from what I've read... Uh, Pierre Latt sees him as, as this very tragic figure and his film about Van Gogh does not feature almost any triumphant moments of uh, painting or artistic creation. Uh, Van Gogh films by Pierre it's an utter masterpiece. It's a movie of uh, mind-blowing beauty and wiseness. I think it's with Jacques Dutronc who plays Van Gogh. It's hallucinating, and it's. An Im- I think Piala tried to make a movie about who was Van Gogh and how he could soak into the perspective of a character in a period. It's almost as if the camera were happening to be filming the real Van Gogh. It's really incredible, and there is again no sentimentalism, and there is no sense of. Uh, pers- uh, there is no sense of um, glorification of the guy, of the painter. It's it's more about the mundanity of who, of what were his life, what was his life, and his death. There is a new movie I saw a trailer about Van Gogh in made in, like as if it's a painting. Mm. 
What is no, that's uh, that's called Loving Vincent. It's playing at, at the festival. And I saw in the trailer that the moment of the dead, the comes it's all, all low angles. It's very very dramatic. You see, if you when when you will see when you he dies as he's there and he's not there anymore in the movie. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful and the and the mise en scène. It's so incredible and the 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 the, the, the flamboyancy of the details in this movie, the, the details of how they eat and what they do in the, on screen. It's so incredible in the, in the Piala. Of course, I'm a big, big Minelli, a big, big Minelli fan. And, and I, understand, I understand that movie too. But the Piala one, it's one of the most striking portrait of the artist uh, uh, I, I can remember seeing. How much inspiration does he provide you? There are, uh, there are moments, I hope you don't mind me saying that in I Am Love, there, there is the, the vertigo uh, moment, uh, the close-up of the hair, which... Uh, Those are little silly things. Sure, but, uh, uh, but they evoke something, I think. I think for cineasts, you know, we get a connection back to, to something we're, we're familiar with and it bring, brings all this added emotion, I think. Uh, when you're making a film, do you consciously think of, of, of the filmmakers like Pilat who inspired you or is it is the trajectory of my of me as a filmmaker I guess it's the trajectory of someone who wants to disappear I really want to disappear and I think that uh, it's not about trying to quote someone consciously not, at least not anymore but it's about trying to disappear and uh, trying to disappear from uh, the urge which is in a way silly to show off and to be able to make something that it's distinctive in a way the perspective it's distinctive but um, that is not uh, uh, relying on the gesture of the camera, on the gesture of a sort of quote of another movie of another director, and most definitely on the gesture of uh, uh, mocking uh, something iconic. So you you, you 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 quoted the scene of Emma Recchi walking in the streets of Sanremo, and the band reminds the Vertigo band. And uh, I remember I was proud of that moment. But now I would be embarrassed making something like that because it's in a way, you know, the Instagram world has in a way contributed to kill a certain sense of cinephiliac uh, idea of uh, juxtapositions because now everybody can make a, a screenshot and say, look, in the pre-digital era where, where you had great cineasts like Brian De Palma, their, their capacity of encompassing a sort of homage to something that pre-existed then and play with it, this idea of postmodernism was pure and was most definitely based on a, a great effort, a great study uh, also even the study of the memory because you didn't have the access to film the way we have, like now if I want to see uh, an Imkontaik film 
um, I will be able to see it mm-hmm. because I can find it digitally and I can see it again and again and again and again and again. But think of Paul Schrader studying Ozu. He had to go to the Cinematheque and uh, uh, bu- um, book the, the room, get the film, watch Ozu. And maybe that vision of Ozu for him was like one every few years. Mm-hmm. And the notes he had to make and the thinking of it and the memory of the sequences he had to make. Mm-hmm. But now you don't have any memory of the sequence. So you can't really project uh, in your memory what is that is left in you of what you saw. You, you have the possibility now to really mocking uh, frame by frame something. Mm-hmm. And that is a sort of catastrophe for me. I... I think I agree, and as much as I have loved what this new age has brought where I can hear the name of a filmmaker and track down everything instantly, I think we do lose something. So, like 24 hours ago, I feel quite fraudulent right now. 24 hours ago, I had not heard of Maurice Pierlat, and now I'm asking questions about, he's, he's such a sentimentalist, he made this film about Van Gogh, and even just asking You're a question. You're unsentimentalist, you said. Oh, sorry, yes. Uh, but even so, like I should, I, I'm asking questions as if, I, I, you know, I just looked up what other people said, which is instantly accessible to me. I have not engaged with it yet. So I do feel quite fraudulent now, even just asking you about him. Um, well, but in, in being uh, uh, candid about it, you are not fraudulent. I can tell you that many of your colleagues could have engaged in the conversation pretending they knew him. Well, I will take that. I will take that as a compliment. It is. <laughs> So that's the interview. Uh, do you like the part how I left in the compliment he pays me at the end? I like it very much. And I must say, Lee, uh, that kind of split-second decision that you make about whether to bluff, about whether you've seen something or whether you know something, or to be honest about your ignorance, is something we face in so many parts of our life. And it paid off here. I think <laughs> he would have found you out uh, if you had tried to bluff. True. And he, he celebrates your honesty and um, it's a beautiful interview. I interviewed him for a bigger splash for SBS um, the year before, and I remember thinking about what a sort of difficult interview it was for me because he's he's not one of those directors that gives you easy sound bites or agrees with what you say and then kind of gives it to you back in a kind of easy to digest format. He's precise. He's mm. very very concerned with getting things right and being not contrarian but but just yeah getting things right and I, I'm glad he chose Piela because I'd never watched his films or heard of him either and um, he's a very interesting filmmaker. He is he is and I should just say that we are going to hear a bit more from Luca in the show we're not we're not done with him yet yeah it's it, I mean you're right he's a fascinating uh, filmmaker Piela and I went from having not heard of him in that interview to now, whatever it is, five months later, uh, I've now watched every single one of his films. I've seen every short film, every feature film. I watched his teeth. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I over-prepared after the interview, I guess. Um, I watched his TV miniseries, The House in the Woods, and then I read interviews with him, I watched interviews with him, I read essays on him, and it was fascinating going, you know, having that sort of Matrix-like moment where you sort of plug Pialat into your head and now you know who he is. Watching his stuff in chronological order, I found that I'd become a fan of his before I made it to his feature films. His short films are so fascinating, and you can watch this guy try to figure out what type of filmmaker he is. Uh, his first film is this arty montage. Uh, his second is a slice-of-life documentary. Then he makes this Chaplin-Tati-esque silent comedy. Then a noirish, suspenseful drama about suicide. 
uh, you know, very La Jetie type film, then a straightforward drama about men and prostitutes, and then a series of documentaries about Turkey. And, you know, it's just this incredible array of short films while he's trying to figure out who he is so then he can become a feature film director. Mm. He was a painter first, is that right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. 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 And he made his first feature when he was 43, which is relatively, you know, advanced in years for a for a director mm. um that was um naked childhood l'enfance nuit um yeah. i really loved that film yeah same yeah it's it's kind of i think a lot of people have compared it to um Truffaut's 400 blows mm. um a story of childhood a boy a kind of um 10 year old boy who's a little bit of a delinquent i suppose being thrown from foster home to foster home but it's it's yeah, I mean, PLR has a very different style to Truffaut, who actually was a producer on this film. Yes, that's right. Yeah, your first feature film gets produced by Francois <laughs> Truffaut. It actually made me think of Ken Loach's films. It was a nice full circle thing to sort of start the year, you know, of hyphenates, talking about Ken Loach's films and then seeing Naked Childhood, which kind of felt in that tradition. I mean, that's a very naturalistic... I mean, uh, we were just talking about whether he's a naturalist or not. Naturalist, no, that means he's naked. Uh, whether he's a naturalistic <laughs> filmmaker or not. But he certainly becomes more dramatic as he goes on. You know, mm. There's more construction when he makes films like We Won't Grow Old Together in 72, which is you know, told over the course of many years, uh, like a relationship between two people that we sort of dip in and yeah. dip out of. I really enjoy We Won't Grow Old Together. It's about a couple breaking up and getting back together over the course of a couple of years. And it's kind of circular because these scenes sort of play out over and over with, with mild differences. And it's based on an autobiographical novel by Pilar about a married filmmaker and his affair with a young working-class woman. And I think that's another thing that Pilar does really well is sort of portrays class difference in a really naturalistic Mm. and sort of offhand way. You know, he doesn't make a big deal about the whole class system, but it's very much present in his films. Yeah, no, that's that's very true. And I find it interesting that it's based, the filmmaker is based on him. I was wondering that because he's so, I found him so awful. He's a bastard. He really is. And He's abusive. In fact, a lot of the men in PLR's films treat women pretty badly, I must yeah. say. Yeah. By our standards, it's, it's pretty appalling. Mm. But his sympathies are always with the women, even though he keeps portraying... Well, I assume they are. Maybe I was just applying my own. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and then he made, like, The Mouth Agape in 74, about a woman dying of cancer and having just watched uh, It's Not the End of the World. I guarantee Xavier Dolan is a huge fan of this film. Graduate First in, in 78, Lulu in 1980. And, and it's around this time that he starts working with Gerard Depardieu. And Depardieu is sort of, you know, this rising star at the time. And the two of them had this incredible relationship. I saw an interview where Depardieu described his relationship with Pilar as a really intense love, almost monogamous. Uh, and I think he appears in almost, not every film, but almost every film from this point onwards. You know, Police and Under the Son of Satan and Le Gassou. I enjoyed Police, which was um, the 1985 film with um, Gerard Depardieu, Mm -hmm. and it's about a moody, jaded police detective who falls for a young woman who's played by the gorgeous Sophie Marceau. I think it might have been one of her first roles as the femme fatale. And this film was co-written by Catherine Breyer. Yeah, I was going to play that. Yeah, very interesting. Early, yeah, yeah, before she was a director. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. Yeah, um... It, it, this was a huge box office hit. Mm. And because of PLR being an influence on Luca, I was wondering if... Because this is... Like, it's a procedural, but it's a character-based film, and they were, those were less art house then mm. than they are now. 
back when dramas were the norm for mainstream cinema. And I wonder if Luca considers himself a more mainstream filmmaker, maybe born in the wrong decade. If I'd watched all these films, I would have thought to have asked him if mm. I'd seen them all before I'd interviewed him. Yeah, he was very much, you know, Police was a huge box office hit. These were popular films. Mm. And they were also award-winning films. Like his first film won the Jean Vigo Prize. Ah. And then Under the Son of Satan in 87, I think won the Palme d'Or. Right, yes, controversially. Um, apparently it was booed. booed. Yeah. yeah, as Lucas said, he said back to the to the audience, I don't like you either. Mm. Um, I've got to say, Lee, you told me this was one of your favourites of his films and I could not watch it. Wow. Um, you've included it in the show notes as one of the special double bill that people should catch, but warning, <laughs> this is really, really boring. Um, <laughs> it did win the Palme d'Or at uh, Cannes in 87, but I will say the Washington Post backs me up when they said, here's your choice, you can spend however many dollars it takes to see this film or you can stay at home and hit your head with a hammer and um yeah it's so i gotta say i did give up after 20 minutes so maybe it gets better but there's a lot of after 20 minutes i know that's all the best stuff happens after (laughs) (laughs) obviously oh so in this scenario i'm the guy who gave pilar the palm door and you're one of the people in the audience yeah exactly i think we are very representative (laughs) what did you love about the film I, I found it a profound meditation on faith. And if, if, I hate faith. I oh, have do? no faith. Oh, yeah. well. <laughs> I have none, but I love films about faith. I know he's he certainly, I mean, he was an atheist who, and I, I find films about faith made by atheists really interesting. It also reminded me of Martin Scorsese's Silence, which, which came out in Australia in January. So again, the full circle thing mm. of watching priests struggle with their faith. And then, um, yeah, I, I thought it looked, it was the best looking of his films. I want to say there's an amazing ending, which, <laughs> but uh, there's, there's a lot of, it goes to some really interesting places throughout. Well, his next film was Van Gogh uh, in 91, which was, I think maybe he felt this was his masterpiece. I think this was maybe his favourite of his own films. It's the, certainly the longest of his films. He makes 90-minute films, and this was, you know, this was quite long, two hours and 40 minutes or something. Uh, it, it feels a lot like Michael East, Mr. Turner, or... Jane Campion's Bright Star. Mm. And it's more about depression than the creation of art. Like, you have to be depressed to create great art. It's more about a man who happens to be an artist but is depressed. Mm. And there's a moment where he draws a chalk drawing for a crying kid and then it slam cuts into a scene in which he's accused of not being kind. And it's not a film that stretches into pop psychology, but there are moments like that. Those edits really capture the swings of depression. Mm. It's such a clever film, but it's so it's so beautiful. It's it's not overt or uh, or in your face with what it's trying to do. It's a very gentle, gentle biopic. And I love that you know for a suffering artist, which you know PLR was, Van Gogh's sister-in-law talks about how she's sick of hearing artists talking about suffering because art is a luxury and the poor really suffer. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, you're not allowed to, to feel that. But his last film, Le Garçou, was one he was not happy with and he always intended to come back. Mm. He always intended to re-edit it. And watching this film, I was wondering if we see him as a naturalistic director because he's not particularly ostentatious when it comes to production. The music is kept to a minimum during dramatic moments. The lighting is clearly motivated. There are no dramatic camera movements, but it's still a very careful construction. Everything is so carefully placed, but it looks so natural. Yeah. So I I, I think it is a compliment. I think it's because we feel his scenes are so authentic. Yeah. When we say something is naturalistic, it's a good thing. 
Well, he sort of treads a really fine line in some of the films uh, between documentary and drama, and he can sort of skip around in time a bit so that you're not mm. quite sure exactly when this could be. It's like a, a moment just captured very simply almost. And I like what um, Luca said in that interview about trying to um, disappear and resist the yeah. urge to show off because I think that's something that both these filmmakers share, even though, you know... Luca's films, I think, are a lot more sort of perhaps beautiful in, mm. in more of an overt way. I, th- I think that's probably true. He, I, I do get the, the feeling from watching interviews with him and reading interviews with him that Pilar was frustrated by never quite getting his due. He talks in an interview about being on the fringe of French cinema and that French cinema itself is on the fringe, so he is on the fringe of the fringe. As we say, he got heckled when he won for Under the Sun of Satan and he, and he actually wouldn't answer a journalist's question about why he'd come back after having such a fraught relationship with Khan. So he clearly had this feeling of not being accepted even as he was accepting mm. an award, which is fascinating because his... Yeah, it, it's it's a filmography that I think is very much worth checking out. It's not... there. Are, I think there are eight features all up. It's worth delving into. I mean, I've talked to a few people who know him very well. Mm. It's like 20% of the cinephiles I talk to love him and the other 80 haven't heard of him. And yeah. I was definitely in that 80 up until a few months ago. Yeah. Well, I, I also like what um, Luca said in the interview about him being uh, a very aggressive interviewee and mm. that you should look up his interviews online. Yeah. He apparently was a difficult person. He had difficult relationships with pretty much everybody he worked with. But I think that's because he's just such an interesting filmmaker with a really distinct vision. Yeah. I like that. Well, that's it for this month and this year. Rochelle, thank you so thank you for coming on board and thank you for having me and for tolerating my incompletest tendencies, Lee. Uh, you, I've you, really loved it. You make up for it with insight that shames mine. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's it's been great having you on the show, and I look forward to next year. We have a lot of very cool stuff in store that I cannot wait for people to find out about. So thank you all for listening. I hope you've been enjoying it. Tell your friends about it. We'll see you in 2018. And we will give the last word to Luca Guadagnino. Well, I think that uh, if the, our audience is listening, I, I recommend, not only I recommend to go back to the movies and try to see them, definitely start from our loved ones, but a great deal of fun can come from interviews to Maurice Pialazzo. Look online for his beautiful, very aggressive interviews. He was a great, great man. I can tell you that if he wasn't that, that I would have cast him. He was a great actor too. I would have cast him in something. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I would like to talk to, about Piala forever, but maybe that's enough. That's, a, that's like an enzyme. You say enzyme? In the, oh, yeah, in yeah. the, in the yeah, milk. Okay, yeah. we're making something. Yeah. Out of, maybe people can start... I mean, if there is anybody listening to this who has never heard about Maurice Piala and has a sparkle of curiosity out of it, please indulge. It's not going to be time lost. Actually, it's going to be fantastic. Luca, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. 